Christ. Father, we pray that as we contemplate what you have revealed of yourself, you would overwhelm us with your majesty, with your infinite goodness, with the unbounded ocean of your being. And Lord, we pray that you would cause us to be in awe of you as God, the one who does not change, and therefore we are not consumed, the one who is greater than our hearts and who knows everything. And Father, we pray that you would also teach us this truth that intimacy with you is for those who fear you and to them you make known your covenant. And Lord, I pray that you would cause us to be people who recognize the enormity of the privilege of knowing you, of having you reveal yourself. And Lord, help us to be those who walk with you, those who walk with you in worship. Lord, we ask that you would do this great work in our hearts and compel us to return daily, as often as we can, to the scriptures. Work in us so that we are people, we pray, who naturally cry out to you, who call upon your name, who know you. We ask this, Lord, for your glory, for our everlasting good. In the name of Christ, amen. I would invite you to open this morning to Genesis chapter 18, and we'll be looking at the second half of this chapter, Genesis 18, verses 16 through 33. And as you turn there, I want to uh, read to you these words of Matthew Henry, um, commentator on the Bible, the whole Bible from several centuries back. Matthew Henry wrote, in response to this passage, communion with God is kept up by the word and prayer. In the word, God speaks to us. In prayer, we speak to him. God's word then does us good when it furnishes us with matter for prayer and excites us to it. Communion with God is kept up by the word and prayer. And in this chapter, we're picking up right in the middle, but several weeks back, we looked at the first half of the chapter, and we saw how the Lord reveals himself to Abraham, and he begins to speak to Abraham. And in response to God's revelation of himself now in the passage that's before us, Abraham is going to respond to the Lord in prayer. And, and what's before us is really, I think it's one of the most intriguing passages in the Bible because of what it shows us about God. What we have here is the eternal, omniscient, omnipresent one. Okay, so let me just say, he's not bounded by time, he's not limited by space, and he knows everyone. He knows everything. 
And what we have in this passage is this God accommodating himself to Abraham. And, and then this God allowing himself to be described in terms that make sense to us as human beings. So if you remember from the first part of the, of the passage, what we had were, was, was Abraham in Genesis 18.1. He's sitting by the tor- door of his tent, and there in Genesis 18.1 we read, The Lord, and you see those, those squashed capital letters, which tells you you've got Yahweh. Yahweh appeared to him. And when Abraham lift, lifts up his eyes, he looks and he sees these three men. And now in this passage, one of these three men is going to stay with Abraham, and the other two are going to continue on to Sodom. And some people, I think perhaps too easily, they will say, well, it's the Lord who stays with Abraham, and it's two angels who go on to Sodom. The reason I think that's a little bit too easy is because if you look at that passage that uh, uh, Nate read earlier, in chapter 19, verse uh, 16, we read that the men seized him, they seized Lot, and then later in the verse, the Lord, and again there's the small capitals, Yahweh, being merciful to him. So, you know, there, there are good arguments to conclude that, that maybe these, these are two angels. Uh, I think there are good arguments to conclude that these are angelic emissaries of the Lord who represent him, but I think, uh, I'm, I'm persuaded by those who say there's no distinguishing between these three guys. So I understand why some people think that uh, you can distinguish, but I'm I'm pointing to evidence that I think all three of these guys represent the Lord. The Lord is allowing himself to be represented by these three three men. And um, and it's it's an intriguing anticipation of what will later be revealed about the Trinity. So as we look at this passage, we're dealing with God disclosing himself. And, And so I would invite you, you to look with me at Genesis 18. We'll pick this up in verse 16. We read, Then the men set out from there, and they looked down toward Sodom. So God has revealed to Abraham that he's going to have a son, and now they're going on, two of them are going to go on toward Sodom. And then verse 17, The Lord said, and again you see those, those small caps, the R is a capital R, but it's a it's shorter, and this is representing Yahweh. Yahweh said, shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Now, I trust that many of you in this room have read this passage, so you know what's about to happen. God is going to tell Abraham what he's going to do at Sodom. Abraham is going to enter into this, this sort of um, uh, process of negotiating with God about God showing mercy to Sodom, and then you also know what's going what's to follow in the next chapter. Um, the, the two men are going to arrive in Sodom. They're not going to find ten righteous. I would suggest to you that in, in, in one way of looking at the passage, they don't find any righteous. And God mercifully saves. He mercifully delivers Lot. And, and then Sodom and Gomorrah are destroyed. Okay, so we know what's going to happen in the passage. We also know that God knows what's going to happen in the passage. So this is why I think this passage is so fascinating, so interesting, because as we step back, Moses knows what happens in Sodom. Moses knows how things develop. And so what is Moses, the author of Genesis, showing us about the Lord? Well, one thing here in verse 17, 
As the Lord says, shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? This is part of this sort of pervasive um, presentation of God in human terms. God, if, if we were able to access God directly, I don't think we would find him deliberating within himself about whether or not he is going to disclose himself to Abraham. This is for our benefit that the Bible presents the Lord this way. And so as we, as we look at this, God's self-disclosure invites Abraham's intercession. We're going to see Abraham intercede on behalf of Sodom in the verses that follow here. And it's God disclosing himself. And, and I would like to just reflect with you on this. God chooses to reveal himself to Abraham, and then God patiently listens to and interacts with Abraham. And we, we read one of these verses in our call to worship, Isaiah chapter 41, verse 8. I wonder if you noticed this little detail, Isaiah 41, verse 8, but you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend. Can you imagine that? The Lord says that Abraham is his friend. God discloses himself to Abraham, inviting Abraham to interact with him about what he's going to do. And then another place in the Old Testament where this kind of stated is this kind of thing is stated is 2 Chronicles chapter 20 verse 7 where Jehoshaphat is is praying, and he says to the Lord, Did you not, our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? That's amazing, isn't it? That a human being could be called the friend of God. James references this. James chapter 2, uh, referring to the way that Abraham believed God, James 2, 23, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. And then, as I was, as I was thinking about this, my, also came to mind John 15. Listen to what Jesus says to his disciples, John 15, verses 14 and following. Jesus said to his disciples, you are my friends, if you do what I command you. You see the connection between friendship and obedience? Friendship and revelation? You do what I command you. You receive from me my instructions, and then you regard me highly enough to carry through on what I've instructed you to do. Or perhaps we could say, you trust me. You believe that I know what's right and good for you, and by faith you become my friend like Abraham. You are my friends if you do what I command you. Then he goes on to say, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. And he's in the process of revealing to them how he's going to the cross. So there's this connection between God revealing himself and telling people what he's about to do. And then being regarded by him as a friend. Knowing what the master does, knowing the master, friendship with God. 
And then, and then this verse that I, that I referenced in my prayer at the beginning, I, I love this verse, Psalm 25, verse 14. I love it that we sing Psalm 25. This verse gets me every time I think about it or encounter it. it the ESV renders this, the friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him. And the word that's rendered friendship there is a word that can be translated secret counsel. The secret counsels of the Lord are for those who fear him. Or you could render it intimacy because you share your secret counsels with those with whom you are intimate. Intimacy with God is for those who fear him. And to them he makes known his covenant. So if you want to be a friend of God, you want to be intimate with God, study the scriptures. Respond to the Lord in prayer. Do what we see Abraham doing right here in this passage. Matthew Henry wrote, again in response to this passage, those who by faith live a life of communion with God cannot but know more of his mind than other people. If you walk with God, You'll, you'll believe what the scriptures say about what God is going to do. You'll believe what the scriptures say about what God says is the way the world works. You'll know him. So as a point of application, I just want to urge you to know the word. I want to urge you to take time daily to read and memorize and meditate upon the scriptures. If you will do this, you will come into the secret counsels of the Lord. He will reveal your, his, himself to you in the scriptures. And it will excite in you prayer. If you know God, you see what he's going to do, you cannot but respond to him, crying out to him for mercy, crying out to him for justice, crying out to him for help, and for the ability to do what his word instructs you to do. The Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? And then he, then he goes on. But before, before we go on, I, I want to um, read to you from Herman Bavink uh, to get at, someone said, somebody said amen, I agree with that, um, to get at the, the way that in this passage we're getting the Lord accommodating himself to us in our humanity. Um, Bavink, he, he says... He writes this, to God alone belongs true being. Okay, so, so what, I'm, what I'm trying to get at by reading this quote to you is I want to I fend off any conclusion that God doesn't know what's going on in Sodom, and that's why he needs to go down and see what's going on in Sodom. That is not what's happening. And I want to I fend off any, any suspicion in your mind that God might actually be deciding on the fly in conversation with Abraham what he's about to do. That is not what's going on in this passage. God, does, God knows fully, and God is not, it's already known to him, and nor is it the case that God is not already present even. Okay, I mean, the passage is going to describe God going down to Sodom. This is not limiting him in some way and saying he didn't actually know what was happening in Sodom. And if we, just, if we just sort of step back and think about God as the creator, 
it's easy to arrive at this because God is the one who has actually created the earth and the sun, and God is the one who set the earth spinning on its axis and then set it, sent it orbiting around the sun, which is what creates for us the sequence of seconds and moments and hours that make up time. And God is outside that time, so he's not constrained and limited by it. And so because he is a lone true being, Bavink says, and because he, he cannot change, and just a, a, a verse here for you on this point, Malachi 3.6 uh, Malachi says, uh, speaking, the Lord speaking through Malachi, because I, the Lord, do not change. Okay, so the Bible teaches God does not change. And he, and he knows everything. 1 John 3.20, if our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts, and he knows everything. Okay, so God is not learning things, and God is not changing as he adds new information to his store of knowledge. Any change would diminish his being, Bavink says. The unchanging God is related to his creatures in manifold ways and participates in their lives. Let me read that to you again. The unchanging God is related to his creatures in manifold ways and participates in their lives. Now, if you tell me, how can that be? If you say to me, how can that be? I'm going to say to you, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how he can be related to us in manifold ways and participate in our lives and yet never change, never come to new information, never make a new... Dis I don't know. I can't figure it out. The mystery is beyond me. But isn't this how you want it? You, you don't want a God who actually doesn't know the future. You, that would be a limited, less than God, lowercase g, small case g, God. You don't want that. The unchanging God is related to his creatures in manifold ways and participates in their lives. God is transcendent and imminent. And then listen to this. Without losing himself, he can give himself. What Bavink is saying when he says without losing himself, he can give himself is somehow God doesn't surrender who he is as God, the unchanging one, who is not limited by space, by time, by knowledge, he is absolute being. He doesn't lose any of that as he actually gives himself and reveals himself to us and, and enters into the process of our lives with us. Without losing himself, he can give himself and while absolutely maintaining his immutability, he can enter into an infinite number of relations to his creatures. Okay, so as we read this passage, I know it's going to sound like God is not already in Sodom, but that is not the case. And it's going to sound like God needs to go check out what's going on in Sodom. That is not the case. That, that's for our benefit. That's for us to, to be able somehow to know this, this infinite God who is omnipresent, omnipresent and omniscient and, and, and eternal. All these concepts that we can't even begin to get our, our little pea brains around. I could read on, but I'm going to resist the temptation to. I do, though. I do want to read you this quote that's in this same volume that I read to you a few weeks ago because it's so beautiful. God is the real, 
the true being, the fullness of being, the sum total of all reality and perfection, the totality of being from which all other being owes its existence. He is an immeasurable and unbounded ocean of being, the absolute being who alone has being in himself. That's the God that we worship. And that's the God that is revealing himself graciously, patiently, lovingly to Abraham. So the Lord said in Genesis 20, uh, 18, verse 17, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? And this is picking up what the Lord said back in Genesis 12, 3, when the Lord first revealed himself to Abraham and started making promises to him. And he says in Genesis 12, 3, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who dishonor you, and all the families of the earth will be blessed in you. And then this point, that all the families of the earth are going to be blessed in Abraham, is going to be reiterated as we continue through Genesis. One place, it's a couple of places, 22, 18, 26, 4, if you want to write those references down. And then think about what happens in this passage. God has just said, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed in Abraham. What's Abraham going to do in this passage? He's going to intercede for Sodom. He is about the work of being a blessing to the nations as he responds to the Lord in prayer for Sodom. All the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. Verse 19. For I have chosen him. And if you're looking at an ESV like I am, you'll see that there's a footnote on the word chosen. And down in the lower margin, it says Hebrew known. I have known him. I have kn and this gets, us at the, this gets us again to this, this remarkable being that is the God of the Bible. He says, I have known Abraham. You know, if you, if you really get your head around the idea that God is eternal and he's outside our time, there is no such thing as foreknowledge. For God, because he doesn't need to foreknow anything. Everything is always before him for him to know. Past, present, and future, it's an eternal present before him. There's nothing he doesn't know. And he says, I have known Abraham. And, and they render it chosen because when God knows someone in this sense, what he has done is he has set his love on Abraham. He has determined within himself that he is going to show mercy to Abraham, that he is going to graciously, lovingly reveal himself to Abraham and then enter into this relationship that we see working its way out in this passage with Abraham. And then look at the, look at the, the results of this or the purpose clause there in verse 19. I have chosen him that he may command his children. You know, there's... There's some steps left out of there, right? We could say, I've chosen him, that I might reveal myself to him and convince him of the goodness of my ways and instruct him in all my ways so that he may command his children. But if the Lord has known Abraham and revealed himself to Abraham, all that can be taken for granted. Because it's, it's, it's so overwhelming and overcoming. If God chooses to reveal himself, no one is going to say, actually, I don't think that God is worthy of worship. I don't think that God's ways are right and true and good, and I don't think I want to uh, pass on that God's ways to others. If he reveals himself to you, you will respond with awe 
and gratitude and with an embrace of everything that he, he has given you and then an eager desire to, to pass that on. I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Now, look back up at the end of verse 18. All the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. Well, the outworking of that promise is going to come as God reveals all of his goodness and glory to Abraham. Abraham embraces all of it. And then Abraham begins to teach others about this God. And they'll be blessed through what he communicates about this God who has revealed himself. So the, the promise of blessing... It's directly tied to obedience, isn't it? It's directly tied to Abraham's experience of God, which results in Abraham walking in God's ways. Um, this, this statement here, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. There's a lot of talk in our culture today about righteousness and justice. I just want to read you Proverbs 28.5. This is a verse that I've referenced many times in sermons previous to today. Proverbs 28, verse 5. Evil men do not understand justice, but those who seek the Lord understand it completely. The Lord is saying, I, I'm going to reveal myself. I've known Abraham. I'm going to give him my truth. And then later scripture is saying, he's going to understand justice. E evil men who reject the Lord, evil men who don't embrace God's teaching, they're not going to understand justice. But those who seek the Lord understand it completely. And the, the previous verse, listen, listen to Proverbs 28, verse 4. Those who forsake the law, the Torah, the scriptures, those who forsake the law praise the wicked. But those who keep the law strive against them. Those who keep the law, those who keep the teaching of the scriptures, strive against the wicked. And then uh, right before this in, in, in Genesis 18, verse 19, right before by doing righteousness and justice, there's this statement, to keep the way of the Lord. And I want you to hear some statements from Psalm 119 about the delight of the way of the Lord. Because I, I, my, part of my prayer for you in, in your hearing of this sermon is that you will begin to feel within yourself, I want the Bible. I need the Bible. God reveals himself to me in the Bible. I can be a friend of God by studying the Bible and then responding to it in prayer. And I want you to feel that desire. So listen, listen to Psalm 119. And, and I'm just going to uh, select some verses here. Psalm 119, verse 24. Your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. Your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. Verse 35. Lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Verses 46 through 48. I will also speak of your testimonies before kings and shall not be put to shame. For I find my delight in your commandments, which I love. 
I will lift up my hands toward your commandments, which I love, and I will meditate on your statutes. Why does this guy love the Bible? Because God reveals himself in the Bible. Because as he studies the Bible, he comes to see God. Verse 72, Psalm 119, verse 72. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Better than money. Verse 77. Let your mercy come to me that I may live, for your law is my delight. Verse 92. If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. You can identify with that, can't you? If the scriptures hadn't carried me through, I don't think I would have made it. Verse 97. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Verse 103. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth, better than money, better than honey. Verse 127, therefore I love your commandments, above gold, above fine gold. 143, trouble and anguish have found me out, but your commandments are my delight. We could go on and on this way in Psalm 119. It's a magnificent response to God about the goodness of of his word. The Lord says of Abraham in verse 19, I have chosen him, I've known him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord. And we've just seen that that is a delightful way. It's the path of life. It's sweeter than honey. It's better than, than having access to all riches. It's the good life. To keep the way of the Lord by doing just, righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, verse 20, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down now. I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. We've seen the Lord talk this way uh, previously in Genesis back in chapter 11. When they're building the Tower of Babel, the Lord says, I will go down and see this tower that they've made. And again, this is, this is God accommodating himself to our way of thinking, to our way of talking. And, and as we come now into this section where, where Abraham and the Lord are going to go back and forth, and Abraham is interceding on behalf of Sodom, I just want to make... Uh, six observations here about what happens and in response to what we're about to read. So um, the, the Abraham is, is going to start out asking the Lord, are you going to sweep away the righteous with the wicked? And so my first observation is God doesn't do that. He doesn't sweep the righteous away with the wicked. And the reason is that there aren't any righteous. There aren't any righteous in Sodom. God doesn't sweep away the righteous with the wicked, number one. Number two, God doesn't spare the city. You know, Abraham is saying, if you find 50 righteous there, will you spare the city for their sake? God doesn't sweep the righteous away with the wicked, and he doesn't spare the city. Number three, God hears Abraham's prayer. He bears with him. God knows absolutely what he's about to do infallibly what he's about to do. 
God knows exactly, God knows that there are no righteous in Sodom. And yet, he engages with Abraham in this prayer that we're about to read. Number four, Abraham prays for God's mercy. That's really what this is about. Abraham prays for God's mercy. Abraham, is, he's not denying that God needs to do justice, but he is crying out to God to do mercy. And so in the justice and the mercy, you really see the character of God, the, the only one who's able to perfectly bring these two things together, justice and mercy. Um, number five, God does mercy through justice. We know what happens. He delivers Lot. God does mercy. And then lastly... Um, we, we, we're not going to, Lord willing, we'll do Genesis 19 next week. I thought briefly about do, trying to do 18 and 19 together in one sermon, uh, but 19 is a long chapter. That would be a lot. We'd probably be here for a long time. But also, as, I mean, one night this, this week, I read that whole passage aloud to our, uh, our family in family devotions, which is our normal practice. We'll, we'll read the passage that's going to be preached the next Sunday uh, when we can gather in the evenings. And um, it's a troubling passage. Genesis 19 is a troubling passage. Lot does a despicable thing. He does several despicable things in Genesis 19. And, and that leads me to my sixth observation here. God delivers someone, Lot, that we wouldn't consider righteous. We would not, I mean, you, you'll see next week if you don't know the contents of the chapter. We, we don't come away from Genesis 19 thinking to ourselves, what a righteous man. No, we come away thinking, wow, oh my goodness, that's in the Bible? Second, Peter calls that guy righteous twice in the same verse? What is going on here? It's scandalous. Any sinner who is justified and considered righteous, it's scandalous. And so, you know, if you're, if you're visiting here this morning and, and you want to know what, what exactly we believe, we believe in a, a God who reckons sinners as righteous if they turn from their sin and put their hope and trust in Christ. That's, that's what we believe. And, yeah, it's scandalous. If you, want it, if you want to walk through us with it, we'll be here again, Lord willing, next Sunday, and we can look at Genesis 19 together, and you'll see just how scandalous it is. I think everybody in the room is going to be disgusted by what Lot does. There's no excuse for it. And I'm not going to explain it away. It's awful. I hope every father in the room would not do that, what he does. Any of it. Okay, so with these six observations before us, let's now look at, at what happens here. Look at verses 22 and following. So the, the men turned from there and went toward Sodom. But Abraham still stood before the Lord. So two of these guys have gone on. And, and the one still stands there with Abraham. And then verse 23, then Abraham drew near. And then he begins to speak. And, and you know, if, uh, well, I wonder if, if that drawing near calls anything to your minds. I wonder if you think of any, any passages that speak of drawing near in light of the kinds of things that we've been talking about. Uh, as, as I was thinking on this, there, there are two places in Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 4 the author of Hebrews says, 
We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, talking about the Lord Jesus, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. It's almost as though the author of Hebrews is urging us to do what Abraham does, to draw near. And look, your prayer may be totally misguided, like Abraham's was. What if you find 50 righteous in the city? He knows whether or not there are 50 righteous in the city. And, and what he's asking for, will you spare the city? He knows he's not going to spare the city. But nevertheless, his prayer is answered. Because the Lord does show mercy. And for Abraham's sake, the Lord remembers Lot. So the prayer is still effective. Even if it's misguided and wrong on some of the details, you should pray. That's my point here. You should pray. You should obey Hebrews 14. Let us then, Hebrews 4, 16. Let us then with confidence draw near. Hebrews 10, uh, verses 21 and 22. Since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. We should draw near. So application number one, love the scriptures. Be always in the scriptures. Application number two, follow Abraham's example and draw near to the Lord. Verse 23 Abraham of, of Genesis 18, Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Now, you know, we can observe. This is, there's a false premise here. There aren't any righteous in Sodom. And yet, the heart is right. Abraham's heart is good, isn't it? Uh, there was one commentator I read who said this about this passage. Here is great charity. Abraham has a charitable opinion of Sodom's character, as bad as it was. And he knows what's going on in Sodom. He knows what kind of people those are. As bad as it was, he thought there were several good people in it. And then this commentator writes this. It becomes us to hope the best of the worst places. I think that's right. It becomes us to hope the best of the worst places. And then he, can, he, he continues um, that Abraham has a charitable desire for Sodom's welfare. And, and I think all that is good and right. This is, this is good that Abraham is, is seeking mercy even for Sodom, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Verse 24, suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Okay, so uh, the Lord knows all, all that's going on. And yet, he's going to continue to interact with Abraham. Not because he needs to be placated. Not because he doesn't know what's going to happen. Not because he's reconsidering what he's going to do. This infinite God loves Abraham. And he loves you. And he's revealing himself to Abraham. And he's entering into relationship with Abraham. Just as he does with us. Abraham says in verse 25, Far be it from you to do such a thing. To put the righteous to death with the wicked so that the righteous fare as with the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? You know, as I, as I read and reflected this, on this verse, 
I, I think the Lord has every right here to be a little bit offended by Abraham. And, and to respond to Abraham like, look, pal, number one, your premise that there are righteous people there are wrong. Number two, any suggestion that I'm not going to do justice, what basis, what grounds do you have for that? I'm going to be merciful too, but I'm going to be just, and nobody's going to question my justice. And the Lord doesn't respond that way to Abraham. Look at, look at the Lord's kindness. Verse 26, the Lord, the Lord is not affronted. He's not offended. His dignity, his you know, he doesn't get his, his hackles up. Verse 26, the Lord said, If I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. And then, and then Abraham just keeps coming, advancing upon the concessions that the Lord makes. Verse 27, Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. He knows that the Lord is holy and that he's nothing before the Lord. Suppose five of the 50 righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. So again, the Lord is so patient and kind. Again, he spoke to him and said, suppose 40 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. And then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry and I will speak. Suppose, there are, suppose 30 are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. He said, behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Verse 31, repeating what he said in verse 27. Suppose 20 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, and now here in verse 32, he's going to repeat what he said in verse 30. Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again but this once. Suppose 10 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. Um, God welcomes Abraham's prayer. God has other options. I mean, sparing the city, not sweeping away the righteous with the wicked, those aren't the only options, right? What the Lord's going to do is he's going to take the one righteous person, whom we wouldn't consider righteous, but he's going to take the one righteous person out, and then he's not going to spare the city. So there are other things that the Lord could do, and yet the Lord is patient with Abraham. And I think what's ultimately driving Abraham's prayer here is Abraham's concern for God's glory. Abraham is concerned for God to be righteous, yes, but he's also concerned for God's mercy to be seen. Some takeaways from this prayer. I, I think it's remarkable how patient with Abraham God is. And and the, the encouraging thing about this is that he'll be patient with us. Our prayers are not any better informed than Abraham's. And the Lord will be patient with those who seek him. It's, it's, hard, it's hard for us because when we have conversations with people, we're usually seeking information or seeking an, an interaction that we haven't had. We're looking for confirmation. We're, we're, we're finding out new things. That's not how it is with God. Somehow he loves us, even though he doesn't need new information, he doesn't need our opinion, he loves us nevertheless. God's patient with Abraham, he'll be patient with us. And then in God's responses to Abraham, if I find 50, I won't destroy it. For the sake of the five, I will, for the 45, I won't destroy it. And on and on down he goes. 
God is willing to show mercy. He's willing to show mercy. That's good news. He loves mercy. We should cry out to him to do so. I think informed by this passage, Isaiah, over in Isaiah 59, he's going to say this. This is Isaiah 59, verses 14 through 16. Justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away. For truth has stumbled in the public squares and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. The Lord saw it and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw, Isaiah 58, verse 16, that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. It's almost like the Lord is looking for someone like Abraham to intercede on behalf of the wicked. God is just. God is merciful. And we have this opportunity in our lives to know God. To, to be, like Abraham, friends of God, to whom he has revealed himself, to whom he has made known what he's going to do in the future, to whom he will listen if we draw near with hearts full of faith, trusting in Christ, our great high priest. I'm going to return here to this quote that I began with, with from Matthew Henry. Communion with God is kept up by the word and prayer. In the word, God speaks to us. In prayer, we speak to him. God's word then does us good when it furnishes us with matter for prayer and excites us to it. Wednesday night, Matt is going to stand up here and furnish us with matter for prayer. And our prayer is that that will excite us to it. That's what we want. And I would, I would encourage you. I mean, I think the, the health of our church can be measured by our prayer meetings and by our personal response to God on a daily basis. And so I would would plead with us to, to be people who soak ourselves in the Scripture and then who respond to God in prayer. Let's pray together. Father, it's going to take you revealing yourself to us in the Word. It's going to take you compelling us again and again by the power of your Spirit to convince us that all the things that could distract us from this, whether those things are social media or movies or games or all good things that we could go to, reading the paper, whatever, Lord, it is that keeps us from the Scriptures. It's going to take you convincing us anew that your word is sweeter than honey, that there's no better way for us to spend our time than calling out to you for mercy. So, Lord, I pray that you would do it. I pray that you would make yourself God to us in our hearts. Convince us that you are the Holy One, the one who knows all things, the one who does not change, and mysteriously, the one who relates to us in these manifold ways and engages with us in our lives. Lord, we want to know you. And so we cry out to you that you would compel us, draw us, make us want to draw near to you, we ask in Christ's name.
Amen.